Hello and welcome to this special episode of Freud in Focus. In this series on the uncanny, Tom and I talked about Freud's 1919 paper in great detail. We mentioned in our last episode that the Freud Museum held an exhibition from October 2019 to February 2020, honoring 100 years since The Uncanny was published. During this time, we had talks, courses, and a major conference with speakers from all kinds of disciplines engaging with The Uncanny. And today we are bringing you a talk from that series by Dr. Aaron Balick, a psychotherapist based in London with a special interest in applying ideas from psychoanalysis to contemporary life, especially technology. He is the author of The Psychodynamics of Social Networking, Connected Up Instantaneous Culture and the Self, and he is the director of the international psychology hub Stillpoint Spaces. Dr. Balick's lecture was originally delivered at the Freud Museum with a live audience on the 16th of January 2020. It was called Why Some Forms of Technology Give Us the Creeps. I was just looking up at the screen. I was in this room actually uh, shortly after I launched my book on the psychodynamics of social media, and that was my first ever Freud talk which uh, at the Freud Museum, at his home in London, which you can imagine is a very exciting thing for a, a psychotherapist to come and do. And that was more than six years ago now that book came out. And that book came out because technology, it's mostly written about social media, but uh, technology was giving people the heebie-jeebies. And I wanted to talk a little bit about why and use contemporary psychoanalytic perspectives in order to do that. Um, this season of The Uncanny is a really good opportunity as well. I'm going to be talking to you for about an hour about this, and then we're going to have some questions and answers in the end. Um, particularly, the nature of uncanniness, which is somewhere between a homey feeling and a horror, but neither of those things. And those of you who are into psychoanalysis or Freud will know that in German, uncanny is unheimlich, and heimlich is homey, and unheimlich is unhomey. So we're going to be going over this quite a lot because it's this in-between space that we're going to be looking at, which is something that's like home, but not like home. That's what makes something uncanny, creepy, heebie-jeebie-ish, rather than just plain horrific, right? When you're watching a slasher film, for example, you don't tend to get an uncanny feeling, but sometimes when you watch a psychological thriller, you do. And we're going to be talking about those elements, uh, many of which Freud brought onto the scene, um, and many others as well. So we're going to start off with the Freud quote, of course. The uncanny is that class of terrifying with, which leads us back to something long known to us, once very familiar. So there's something that we're going to keep coming back to about the familiar and the unfamiliar. And in order for something to have this uncanny quality, we need to combine that space, or we need to get into that in-between space. So just so, I mean, can I just have some hands? I mean, do people have a sense, a clear sense for themselves about what gives them an uncanny feeling? Can I just have some hands up? Do people have a sense of what gives them a, a horror feeling? Yeah, so that seems like clearer, uncanny, maybe a little bit less clear. For those of you who do have a sense, not, not necessarily technology related, but what gives you an uncanny feeling? 
when, when can you remember one? Just if anybody wants to do some audience participation and shout something out. Maybe being put on the spot to shout something out gives you a feeling of horror. <laughs> Okay, so there should be a familiarity because you know you put them there, and there's a. It sounds like there's a, like a potential supernatural thing. Like, yeah, well, where where could they have gone? Is it, is there another one? Thank you. Deja vu. Okay, and what do you think it is about deja vu that makes it uncanny? Yes. So you have this, this note, you have your reality, and then this, this echo of something that feels a little bit more, it's a supernatural thing again, isn't it? Something a little bit more than reality. I had a, dreams often give people an uncanny situation. I, I had a dream just after I got back from the New Year's break, and it was, I was with a colleague at work, we were outside, and it was kind of warm, and I kept saying, it's kind of warm. I said, but I just got back from the holidays. How is it kind of warm? And she said, well, it's the May, it's the May Day bank holiday. And, and I knew that we'd just come back from Christmas. And there's nothing scary or spooky about it. But I thought, how could it be May Day just after Christmas? And it gave me this most kind of uncanny feeling because my reality was set. I knew what the reality was. And then suddenly we were in springtime. Yeah? Fiction and, and dreams give us this experience. Um, Okay, does anybody have a clear idea about what it is about technology that might give them an uncanny sense in any way? Yeah. Sorry, what was that? Robots. robots? Especially like a super realistic one. Okay, super realistic robots we're going to get into for sure. Yeah. Okay, so again, we have this in-between area, don't we? It's a machine, and I know what machines are like. And I know what consciousness is like as a human, but if a machine has consciousness, we're back into this unknown area again, right? This gray zone. Any others? Yeah. Okay. The uncanny capacity for the, 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 the suggestions to be so close to what they are. You know, oh, I've just been thinking about a holiday in Bali. Yeah, there were a couple more, I think. Yeah. No? Should we go on? Okay. Uh, so before we go to the next step, uh, I'm going to have a little public service announcement from somebody that I miss very much. I'm sure you will miss him too, but let's just hear what he, oops, he has to say. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. So, uh, for instance, they could have me say things like, uh, I don't know, Killmonger was right, or uh, Ben Carson is in the sunken place, or how about this? Simply, President Trump is a total and complete dipshit. <laughs> now, you see, I would never say these things, at least not in a public address, but someone else would. Someone like Jordan Peele. This is a dangerous time. Moving forward, we need to be more vigilant with what we trust from the Internet. That's a time when we need to rely on trusted news sources. It may sound basic, but how we move forward in the age of information is going to be the difference between whether we survive or whether we become some kind of fucked up dystopia. Thank you. And stay woke, bitches. <laughs> 
Okay, so there are a few elements to this that give us a sense of uncanny, yeah, and we're going to get into the reasons why. One of them that somebody already brought up is kind of the robot that kind of looks human. So there's this, this shift between what's real and what's not real. Can you see, you know, can, did you notice that there was something just a little bit off about him, maybe, that gave you an uncanny sense? And then the second uncanny sense, which is how, how easily we can create something like this these days, which puts us into a whole other kind of global fear situation. This is called deep fake, for those of you who may or may not be aware of that, yeah? Uh, it's like the next level up of fake news. Okay, so we're now 101 years into the Uncanny essay. The 100-year anniversary of the Uncanny was really uh, just before New Year's, 2019. Um, Freud, pretty clever guy, or else we wouldn't be here in this museum, has a whole lot of reasons um, looking into what creates an uncanny experience. Um, a lot of them are borrowed, and a lot of them are borrowed and worked through. Um, some of them are just his, uh, and I'm afraid that I won't be selling you the castration theory of, uh, or fear of castration theory of the uncanny tonight, um, which he uses a story called The Sandman to talk about, where there's a little boy who's scared that the Sandman is going to come take his eyes out. And Freud ends up, maybe I'm making it a little bit simplistic, but ends up coming to the conclusion that his eyes you know, symbolize his testicles and that this is the unconscious fear of castration. Um, I think it's scary enough to get your eyes taken out. And uh, you know, <laughs> given the choice, you, know, you, might, <laughs> you, you, might, you might need to make a choice there. Um, so, but but he, the, the, the key isn't necessarily the castration piece. The key is the repression into the unconscious piece. So the unfamiliar part that we might know about ourselves or pretend not to know. And again, it's that mixing between conscious knowledge and unconscious awareness and where those two mix. Again, why dreams tend to be the uncanny sort of place. So I'm just going to give you a little bit, see if I can get that cursor out of the way, of some of the elements that he talks about in his essay. So something that is at the same time novel and unfamiliar, so we've talked about this a little bit, um, generally has an element of uncertainty to it. So someone doesn't know where they are. That was the uncanniness that I experienced in this kind of banal dream where it should be winter, but it's kind of spring. It's like, where, where am I if it's warm here? Um, inhabiting a space between living and unliving. This is the real robot situation, the robots that look real. Um, this is from an old Twilight Zone episode where the dummy comes to life. Um, in fact, when Freud was exploring this, it was a clockwork mannequin dummy that was sort of evoking the uncanny fear. Um, it contains all elements of reality, but slightly off. So here we have the deja vu example, like I'm here or the missing keys, yeah? Everything is here is exactly as I expect it to be, but there's something off and maybe something a little bit supernatural, something unreal happening. So we're always talking about liminal spaces here, something that is in between. And I'll just have some notes here that I'm going to read from about liminal spaces. Um, what is it about the in-between and all of its configurations that invites such curiosity and interest? For Freud, one of those liminal spaces was the one of the dream. Every dream, he writes, has at least one place where it becomes unfathomable, the navel by which, uh, by which it is connected to the unknown. What makes some dreams uncanny is this very juxtaposition of the seemingly everyday world sitting on top something unfathomable. And if any of you have lucid dreams, you'll know that you often become lucid in your dreams when something happens outside of reality, yeah? So like in my dream when it was May, all of a sudden, I don't know if some people have this capacity, others don't. You think, oh, I must be dreaming. I must be dreaming because this can't possibly be real. And then sometimes you can take some control over your dreams. 
When it comes to unease and the uncanny, there's almost always something in that in-between that provokes the heebie-jeebies. So one of those liminal spaces that we're familiar with is the cemetery. And perhaps what creeps people out about cemeteries is because they occupy that space between life and death. And we don't have to just look at psychoanalysis to see the fertile ground of in-between. I find that it helps to look outside the discipline as well, sometimes, to get a better sense of what we're looking at. And for this purpose, I want to think about ecology just for a moment. Ecologists are interested in what they call the edge effect, precisely because the edge effect refers to the changes that occur in populations that exist at a boundary between two different kinds of habitats. These two boundaries can be something like where the forest ends and the prairie begins, or where the ocean strikes up at the beaches, uh, or in very interesting places like coral reefs where or fresh water from a river comes and meets the briny water from an ocean. Um, edge effects in general have higher biodiversity than single biomes. Uh, for example, the shallow nature of a bank um, in a river, the edge between the shallow water, the deep water, and sunlight creates living zones and induces growth of plankton, diatoms, development of coral, uh, and all the kind of smaller fish that make us very excited about coral reefs when we go look at them close up. There's something about one zone and another zone that by its nature, in ecology even, is just kind of fertile. Now we can kind of take that edge effect into cultural zones as well. And when we think about when we're in edge effect cultural areas, um, we sometimes feel it in our viscera. So moving from one human biome to the next, the feeling is about transition. Some examples of these edge effect transitions are airports, transit stations, and national borders. Um, particularly heavy national borders where you have to go through a process to get to the other side can give you a sort of uncanny feeling. And that sense that we get from passing from one place to another. Um, less romantic in a sense, to, I wrote this before Brexit actually, so it says less romantic in Europe today than historically, but unfortunately we will be getting some borders back that, uh, yeah, that's another story. Um, and another interesting instance of the edge effect are liminal spaces in human culture as well. So you don't have to go from country to country, but you can go to red light districts, for example, cruising areas, bathhouses, border areas, um, outside of town industrial zones at night, failed states, the dark net, um, the duty-free shop I always think is a very creepy zone. I try to avoid it as much as I can. Um, and then there are these like edges between civilized morality and other tendencies. So passions, sensuality, desire, greed, and violence. So you can go to, for example, like the very high-end room of a casino and see people betting you know, tens of thousands of dollars on a, on a, in a casino. And like, because he's a creepy, it's a creepy feeling, right? A, ther a therapist, so lots of people do feel pretty nervous walking into a therapist room for sure. So we're going to be talking about edges also, not necessarily in, in all of these kinds of ways. So we're, I will be a little bit repetitive, I guess, about this in-between space because that's basically the theme. So more elements of the uncanny from Freud. Um, so often has elements of a double. So when the, say, the doppelganger, something is repeated in a funny kind of way that's unexpected. Uh, the feeling of being lost. Uh, the reason why The Shining makes its way into one of my top movies always is because you have all of these effects. You have The Shining does very well until the very end, really, keeping it outside of being totally uh, supernatural, but just uncanny and kind of scary, right? Because you've got your doubles in there. You also have this feeling of being lost, whether it's in the maze or whether it's in the hotel. And if anybody's as obsessed about The Shining as I am, you should see the film Room 237, which really goes into agonizingly nerdy detail about these really crazy things going on in that film. 
strange coincidences, there's your deja vu experience, um, creates a sense of omnipotence either in the self or in another. So when you encounter someone, say a psychic, uh, who knows something about you, that can give you a feeling of uncanny because you have the sense of the other having omnipotence. Um, and then provokes, this is very Freudian, the return of the repressed. So something that is evocative of something that you don't want to know that you've repressed and that you pushed away from your own common knowledge about yourself. So there's a resonance. You're seeing something you really don't want to be confronted with. He has lots of elements of the uncanny in this essay. It's very dense, as many of his are. So something that should have remained concealed but gets revealed, and the manner of how it gets revealed is really important, too, because it has to be a subtle revelation rather than a blatant revelation. Um, has relation to death, dead bodies, or one's own mortality. So how we encounter our own sense of death in a variety of circumstances can give us this uncanny feeling. Refers to an individual with certain special powers. Okay, we're back to the omnipotence again, but it can be other things. Telekinesis, think about the film Carrie, you know, moving things with your mind. Uh, inanimate objects that take a life of their own. Okay, so scary Victorian dolls is an example like this. There's just something about them that you think they're gonna, they're gonna open up their eyes, and why these, the films about them are so successful. Um, and when something that could only occur in imagination happens in real life. Yeah, sometimes this happens. This is the kind of experience that you have in the dream, but what if that happens? That's the deja vu experience as well. And when you know you put your keys there and they're not there, but you know you put them there, yeah? What happened? So Freud says that a great deal that is not uncanny in fiction would be so if it happened in real life. Um, and in the second place, that there are many more means of creating uncanny effects in fiction than there are in real life. Okay, so basically what he's saying, and he's going to go on a bit, is that we can evoke an uncanny feeling in fiction more, more commonly than it's going to happen to us because you can bring in that element by design of the supernatural. It's very rare in real life, and usually when you have an uncanny moment in real life, you find out that it's not supernatural, yeah? So you hear a ghost, but it turns out to be a cat, for example, or you see an image at the night, but it happens to be a coat hanging on a coat hook, yeah? So this is generally... Maybe somebody's seen a ghost, I haven't, but there's generally a resolution of the uncanny in real life. The situation is altered, so as soon as the writer pretends to move into the world of common reality, he takes advantage of our supposedly surmounted superstitiousness. He deceives us into thinking that he is giving us the sober truth, and then after all, oversteps the bounds of possibility. This is really important. This is what makes it distinguished from horror. Yeah, so you don't, generally in the uncanny, you don't have to suspend your disbelief because there aren't monsters running all over the place. Everything is normal except for one slight thing that's ajar. So The Sixth Sense, I guess, is a good movie about this and why you get that uncanny bit. I won't give a spoiler if anybody has not seen that film. You know, when, when, when that kind of, when, when it sinks home, why things are just a little bit off the whole time. The uncanny effect is often and easily produced by effacing the distinction between imagination and reality, such as when something that we have hitherto regarded as imaginary appears before us in reality. This, this can't be real phenomenon. The over-accentuation of psychical reality in comparison to physical reality, um, a feature closely aligned to the belief in omnipotence of thoughts. Okay, so the belief in omnipotence of thoughts is that if I believe something's going to happen, it's going to happen. So that you often see this in obsessive compulsive disorder, that, that these rituals will be engaged in because the idea is, if I don't engage in this ritual, this thing is going to happen. And then you don't do it, and that thing happens, and it results in an uncanny feeling. So all of the examples that I gave before and all of the pictures I've been using have come from fiction for this reason. Um, 
where am I here? Yes, does anybody know the film that this image comes from? Mid-50s? No, I mean, it's not the most uh, generative image from the film, but sorry? I didn't hear what Carnival of Souls? No, not that one. No, it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Okay. So what is uncanny about the Invasion of the Body Snatchers is that the people who have been body snatched, this is the original one, by the way, uh, are just like us, but they're missing something important. In this film, they're missing their emotional selves. They're missing the, the things that makes them human. And there are a couple scenes in the film where the people who are surviving see the pod person that is them. So you get the double as well. They fall asleep, they wake up, and they see that their double is about to come and emerge. So there's always something, again, something that is, how can you tell that this person is no longer human? How can you tell that they've been body snatched? Because nothing particularly gives it away. This is reminiscent of something that's very related to technology. Does anybody know where I'm going? with the word uncanny here? Any tech fans? Yeah, uncanny valley, yep. This is the uncanny valley, right? This was termed in 1970, actually, way before we had too creepy tech by a man called Masiro Mori in Japan. Um, and you can see what happens is you have the degree of human likeness is your graph along the bottom and familiarity, so something is kind of more familiar on the top. So when you get uh, human likeness, familiarity, the, the most you get is a healthy person, yeah? It's familiar and it's completely like human. And then industrial robot is then on the left-hand side because they don't look particular. And an industrial robot's like the kind that makes cars, right? So it's not this kind of robot. It looks nothing human. And then you have this movement towards uncanny feeling where we have the humanoid robot. And then boom, we get into uncanniness here with something that is human, looking but not quite and sort of a little bit dead as well, right, and unfamiliar. And then we start moving back up again. Um, so we're looking at things that exist in this area in relation to doubles, human-like things that produce uncanny valley things that are going on, particularly in technology. And the human-like um, robot is probably the most resonant one, but also the deep fake also. So the video of, of Obama is very close to this as well. Uh, so Freud brings in the element of the unconscious in relation to the uncanny that we're going to be focusing mostly on today. So uh, I've got another Freud quote here. A hidden familiar thing that has undergone repression and then emerged from it, from <coughs> the unconscious, in that uh, everything that is uncanny fulfills this condition. There has to be something of the unconscious going on. We're going to look a little bit more into what bits of the unconscious that is. Ernst Becker, who wrote a book called The Denial, denial of Death in the 70s, this whole book is about how entire, the whole human enterprise is about the denial of death, the work, distraction, all of it. So it basically turns Freud's libido theory upside down. It's not about how we deal with sex and libido, it's how we avoid the fact that we know we're going to die. And he says, to live fully is to live with an awareness of the rumble of terror that, underlines, that underlies everything. That's why you get the zombie and the vampire in the uncanny valley of this dead living thing. Does anybody know who did this uh, portrait of Freud? Salvador Dali. Okay, good one. And it's actually like right out there, which is kind of cool. So let's hope the Freud Museum doesn't sue me for copyright on this one. Salvador Dali says, uh, I believe in general death, but, uh, but in the death of Dali, absolutely not. I believe in my death becoming almost impossible. Okay, a very Dali thing to say. Uh, he paints Freud's face. And let's think a little bit about death Dali, Surrealism, and Uncanny Valley. Here. 
I have a long-standing relationship with death. Almost 30 years. I in life always believe the desire to survive and the fear of death were artistic sentiments. I understand that better now. But there is one thing that makes me different. I do not believe in my death. Do you? Okay, this was made for a Dali arts exhibition through the use of deep fake technology, using some images that Dali had on television, colorizing them, and then making his mouth do what it needed to do. It's kind of a fun deployment in a sense, and you can sort of think, uh, bit loud. Um, you, you can kind of see how when you're deploying this, it doesn't always have to be an uncanny thing, or we're trying to produce a kind of for fun, uncanny effect. Um, but we know that most of it isn't really about fun, and we can see a lot of news headlines lately that bring in another element of uncanny, which is not just the nature of uncanniness in the deep fake, but uh, the danger it can bring to our culture and society in relation to deep fake. Uh, the next video I'm going to show you um, is Bill Hader, who is a, a comedian on Saturday Night Live um, and an impressionist. And what somebody's gone and done is when he's done his impressions in this video is they've deep faked his face to look like the person they're doing the impressions of, like in mid-flow, all right? So you're nodding your head. You've seen this one, yeah? So I just want to show you kind of in a sense how easy, well, I don't think it's easy in the back end, but how easy it is from the front end to see something like this happen. Okay, I'm going to talk you through it, all right? No, no, it finished. It finished. For some reason, something just isn't happening. You can see it on YouTube. It's, it's too bad because he is quite a good uh, impressionist of Tom Cruise. But when he starts to, you'll see in a minute, when he starts to get to the Tom Cruise bit, you'll see flashes of his face go Cruise. Okay. Um, yes, so where are we? Okay, the worrying thing about deep fake, um, as put very well by uh, Danielle Citron, is that ultimately deep fakes are simply amplifying what I call the liar's dividend. When nothing is true, then the dishonest person will thrive by saying what's true is fake. So it's not so much that you're going to see Obama trashing Trump and believing that it's Obama trashing Trump. It's that when somebody says the real thing and deep fake is so good that you can dismiss the deep fake as being made up. And then who is going to be the arbiter of truth, right? Um, we, we will see, and that will, be, that will be up for discussion going forward as well. So it's, it's been very helpful for Trump to talk about fake news because he's benefited from it a great deal. And we start to go into algorithms uh, and uh, uh, social media and filter bubbles, that kind of stuff, um, it all kind of starts to double up on each other. Now, I think there's a deep fake paradox here, too. So this is not Freud. This is actually me, but I wanted to write it down. Um, the nature of what makes deepfake uncanny to us now is that the technology is just a tiny bit short of being perfect. So the faces that we see live comfortably in the uncanny valley. So there was something about uh, Obama's face that was a little bit uncanny because you could see something a little bit funny going on with his chin, which is the old-fashioned uncanny. But what may turn the uncanny into something akin to horror is the improvements that we can expect to see happening soon where you won't be able to make that distinction. And then the uncanny starts tipping into what is real and what is not real, which is kind of a paradox, because it leaves uncanny valley, and then that's no longer scary. But then it becomes scary, because we're in this in-between zone where we don't know truth from fiction. 
Um, some of you may see this one. Hopefully this one will work. Gentle apology. However, we, the political class here in Westminster, have failed. And the consequence... Oh. That's working on the torture in part. Okay, so <laughs> the delay makes it a little bit less uncanny. Before the prison. <laughs> um, this is just technological frustration rather than uncanniness. But... Uh, basically, he's going to endorse Boris Johnson in a moment, right? And then Boris Johnson is going to endorse Jeremy Corbyn. So these are kind of like fun uses of uncanny because we know that these people aren't going to be doing these kinds of things. Again, the things that we need to be worried about a little bit more are the subtle differences or the denials or the things yeah. that didn't happen or the things that did happen. Once so, upon a time, I called for a kinder, gentler polity. Oh, maybe this will work. However, we, the political class here in Westminster, have failed, and the consequences have been disastrous for our society. That's why I'm taking on the toxic culture in part. I'm urging all Labour members and supporters to consider people before privilege and back Boris Johnson to continue as our Prime Minister. Hi folks, I am here with a very special message. Since that momentous day in 2016, division has coursed through our country as we argue with fantastic passion, vim and vigour about Brexit. My friends, I wish to rise above this divide and endorse my worthy opponent, the Right Honourable Jeremy Corbyn, to be Prime Minister of our United Kingdom. Only he, not I, can make Britain great again. Huzzah! Alas, why should you believe me? Much like Odysseus and his encounter with the Cyclops Polyphemus, I too am nobody. I am a fake bear. A deep fake to be precise. And as you can see, even I, the Prime Minister, can be affected by them. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so again, we're kind of at this stage where most of you could probably have worked that out. And certainly if you had a specialist go in there and look at the, the, the subtle movements of the mouth, they would be able to tell us. But we're in this kind of dowdy phase. Yeah, who's going to believe the specialist when you're in your filter bubble and you're already, you know, you've already chosen a side? So this is, this is the real cultural uncanny world that we're moving into. But we are going to change tack now because there's a number of different uncannies I want to cover in a short period of time. So the next one is about omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence, which are the three things that we tend to apply to a god of sorts. Um, which now, whether it's your mobile phone, whether it's Siri, whether it's Alexa, we're starting, this was your uncanny bit, yeah? The, 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 what, what it's going to know about me, what it's going to throw out, or was it yours? One of you, yeah, okay. Um, has it been listening to my conversations? Why is it offering me the holiday that I've just been talking about? What does it know about me? The thing that aligns with the uncanny here is this idea of superstition, the idea of the psychic, the idea of somebody knowing something about you that you couldn't possibly know yourself. So again, back to Freud. Nowadays, we no longer believe in the animism magic of our ancestors. We have surmounted such ways of thought, but we do not feel quite sure of our new set of beliefs, and the old ones still exist within us, ready to seize upon any confirmation. As soon as something actually happens in our lives that seems to support the old discarded beliefs, we get a feeling of the uncanny. And it is as though we were making a judgment, something like this. So after all, it is true that one can kill a person merely by desiring his death, okay? 
it is true that somebody can recommend a really good book for you based on all of the searches of other books that you've made. It is true that uh, you'll start seeing ads uh, in your Facebook feed for a new air conditioning system when your air conditioning system has stopped working. We're going to go through some other examples of this. Um, how much do they know about us is the next part of the uncanny. Uh, this guy we are familiar with, um, collecting all sorts of information about us, has this to say. I wish I could keep telling you that our mission in life is connecting people, but it isn't. We just want to predict your future behaviors. Spectre showed me how to manipulate you into sharing intimate data about yourself and all those you love for free. The more you express yourself, the more we own you. Okay, so you can see that a lot of hackers are having fun with deepfake to kind of make fun of it. But again, um, here we have a mixture of the uncanniness of deepfake and also the way in which we willingly give all of our information to Facebook and Google so that they can be omnipotent and know all sorts of stuff about us and kind of own us. It seems like magic, but it's not, right? Facebook knows about us because it's got, well, thousands of different data points on us. I do another talk about Cambridge Analytica and elections and that sort of thing, but the kind of information that they have um, is exquisitely dense, um, and it's something we're going to have to confront relatively soon. Just as a kind of example, you know, what sort of things do they know? Um, with 68 likes, uh, it can predict with 95% accuracy without having to look at you what your skin color is, with 85% ac uh, accuracy what your sexual orientation is, and 85% accuracy what your political party affiliation is. Now, it can seem like magic when it comes out, but um, you, you think about what's included in 68 likes on Facebook and how much information that gives. If, if 67 of those 68 likes are for The Guardian, you probably lean left more than you lean right. Yeah. Um, if you're liking, uh, I don't know, I'm not going to go into examples or I'm going to get caught in like really horrible superficial ideas about different kinds of people, but you can make uh, social maps that pretty accurately log people where, where they belong. 70 likes, um, they say that Facebook can know pretty much what your friends know about you. 150 likes, what your parents know about you. 300 likes, what your partner knows about you. More than that, do they know more than you know about yourself? Um, I'm not entirely sure. And we're going to get into what they know about you. I can tell you one creepy fact, which is that Facebook knows about two weeks in advance when you're going to click in a relationship with and that person with whom you're going to click in a relationship with. Right? And that's basically based on big data and that is different and unique as we all think we are. We like somebody's comments on Facebook in a similar enough way that in a period of time uh, you can tell when that relationship is moving in a, in a given direction. Um, so creepy, but also interesting. Okay, but it's not magic, right? You imagine all of these bits of information, you imagine very strong computers looking at that carefully and being able to come up with um, all sorts of things. So it does kind of creep into your mind. Um, the uncanny bit is what they do with it, right? So basically, when you go online, whether through uh, Google or any social media, your online self is kind of categorized in a particular kind of a way. Algorithms ident identify the desired demographics, and that's whether you're going to be a Trump voter or whether you're going to buy a, a car or a certain kind of milk. Um, and then fake and real news panders to that kind of personality. I'm going to give you an example in a sense. And then the question is, are our minds then changed? Yeah, so people are siloed. 
they generally are siloed to a very non-psychoanalytic psychological model of the, 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 the five traits. You might know this ocean, openness, conscientiousness, um, neuroticism, uh, extroversion, and I missed one. Uh, anyway, something like openness, sorry? Agreeableness, yes, and agreeableness. So you might see a lobby, like say in America, the gun lobby, trying to get people to vote for the NRA. But people like guns for different kinds of reasons. So if the, uh, if the character sketch shows you as a low, low on openness, meaning that you're more high on tradition, then the sell might be go out into the countryside with your kid hunting you know, in the American way, you know, marching off into the, into the wilderness. Um, if you score high in neuroticism and you're a warrior, then they're going to say crime is, crime is expanding every day. Get a gun in your house to protect yourself. So two completely, completely different cells, two completely different ads sent out to two completely different people for the same end. So when you imagine things like fake news, and we're talking the difference between influence and manipulation here, you might be sending fake news stories to people who are generally anxious to have them vote in a certain direction and vice versa. So that's a little bit creepy. How does this work uh, schematically? Basically, when you go online, particularly across social networks, these are just uh, extensions of self that go into technology. So people are still relating to each other. They're just relating through technology. And we understand that influence happens uh, from oneself to another through the technology. Um, but we're kind of worried a little bit more about uh, manipulation here. So it's one thing if all of your friends are voting in a certain direction telling you why and then giving you real news stories and facts as to why you should be influenced to vote in a certain direction. Um, it's manipulation if you're getting doctored video, doctored uh, facts, um, and that's also sent in your direction. And both things are kind of happening at the same time. And it's not all on purpose. A lot of it is down to the algorithms that just chuck out information that they think that you're interested in and then how maybe nefarious parties use those algorithms to get access to you. So I'm not blaming necessarily Mark Zuckerberg personally for it, um, but they did get caught a little bit short about how effective it is. And then, of course, you've got this whole unconscious thing going on underneath, which when you use big data sets, you can get some access into. So what is big data? Why should we be scared of it? Why should we maybe not be so scared of it? The reason why we shouldn't be so scared of it is because it tends to be nomothetic instead of ideographic, meaning it looks at huge numbers with huge populations of people rather than individuals. So in a sense, they don't care whether you want to buy one product or another product. They're looking at huge populations who are going to care one way or the other. They know lots about the activity of huge populations. They don't necessarily know so much about the activity of a, of a certain individual. It might take you longer or shorter than two weeks to click in a relationship, but on average, it's going to be two weeks. Um, big data is all about the what and not the why. So it's just looking to what happens at the end of it, not necessarily why that happens. That's sort of where psychoanalysis and psychodynamics kick in. Why are people making the decisions that they're making? Um, and big data also creates our world of filter bubbles and algorithms. So when we start to build these images of ourselves online, we start to be fed information about ourselves, and it's a like-meets-like -like situation. So I think most people are kind of familiar with sort of how this works. So algorithms, which is not my area of expertise, I have to say. There might be people who know a bit better. Um, they are learning mathematical mechanisms that use artificial intelligence to gain information and learn from it to produce you more and more things. So if you think about a simple one that might be on Amazon, 
what are all of your buying habits and what might you like? And then we find that they're pretty accurate, as they are, they are my part. So this comes from an article in The Guardian, a series of precise steps that can be followed mindlessly. So it just goes into track and it does its little business. This is different from equations which have one correct result. Algorithms merely capture the process for solving a problem and say nothing about uh, where those steps ultimately lead. So the algorithm for me on Amazon is going to be very different for the algorithm for you on Amazon. It's not an equation where 2 plus 2 always equals 4. It's this book, this book, this book, and this electronic good is going to produce the next guess for me. Algorithms can translate languages without understanding words, simply by uncovering patterns that undergird the construction of sentences. They can find coincidences that human beings may never think to seek. So you think about Google Translate, for example, and the quirky kind of mistakes that it makes. It's because it is making those decisions through algorithms of how frequently certain phrases have been used or certain words have been used together, which work for the most part, but take any specific bit of text, particularly literature or fiction, and it's going to mess up because it tends to be using more unique combinations of words. Um, this is just a, a little bit of a slice of my current Amazon suggested books. Um, I was doing a little bit of research for this as well, so you can see it does a pretty good job. I would buy most of these books. And in a way, we sort of have to think a little bit, um, would we, you know, is there a good side to the big data? Is there a good side about being known enough that we get exposed to things that we might not have been aware of that we can be exposed to? Um, on the other hand, we have the question uh, that, that we're then not being exposed to things that are outside our ken that we might want to be curious about. Uh, this is more important in relation to social media, I think, than to what kind of books you're going to read, but it all works out the same. According to this guy Foer in The Guardian, who I was quoting before, algorithms are meant to erode free will, to relieve humans of the burden of choosing, to nudge them in the right direction. Algorithms fuel a sense of omnipotence, the condescending belief that our behavior can be altered without ever being aware of the, gu the hand guiding us um, in a particular kind of direction. Okay. Sometimes we want the algorithm to make that decision for us. Think about how much time you might spend choosing a gas supplier, for example. And if you can get an algorithm to do that for you every year, that might be a good thing. There are other areas where it's not quite so simple. So do they know us better than we know ourselves? Let's think about that together. Um, Pop-tarts, <laughs> apparently, according to big data, fly off the shelves in the weeks before hurricanes hit, right? So what does Walmart and Target do? They buy loads of Pop-Tarts in advance of the hurricanes coming. Now, you might have thought canned goods, you might have thought you know, plastic bottles of water, but are you thinking sweet, you know, safe food that's probably going to last generations before you open it? Um, you could probably work it out, but there are some really interesting things that big data pops up for us as well. Pops up, yeah. Um, also, the interesting event that happened to a young woman who shopped at Target and got some vouchers through the post for baby goods, nappies, that sort of thing, uh, before she knew she was pregnant. Found out she was pregnant about a week or two later because her buying habits so mimicked the buying habits of new mothers that uh, Target got there before the, the test did. So kind of creepy also. Where are we here? Uh, so the question again now is, creepy, but can it be good creepy? And again, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss this as a group together. We've got um, crisis in social care at the moment. And these caring robots are being developed in Japan to look after the elderly. 
And you notice something quite interesting about them, which is the face, which might be horrifying to some, right? But is purposely and scientifically outside of Uncanny Valley, right? So if you had a kind of weird, gummy, humanoid thing carrying you around, that might be pretty shocking, yeah? But uh, what if you can put together an able-bodied robot uh, with all the right algorithms to know what your needs are and take care of you when there aren't enough people to do that? The argument is clear. You know, where's the human interaction? Where is the love? Where's the thing that people really need? But uh, this is where things might be going. Um, another one, also out of Japan, uh, also purposely outside of um, the uncanny valley, um, and also purposely in response to the lack of care mechanisms going on, is this little thing. Oh, are we going to have this problem again? Therapeutic robot developed by IST and available from Intelligent System Corporation. Okay, we might, we might have a little bit of slow sound again, but I think you probably... Paro is a therapeutic robot developed by IST and available from Intelligent System Corporation. So these are basically therapy animals that don't have to poop. Paro, modeled on a baby half seal, displays emotional responses to external stimuli, which are input via a range of tactile, light, audio, and temperature sensors. Paro is designed to have a positive psychological effect on people who interact with it. で、パロには価値観として、ま、撫でられると心地よい、ま、叩かれると嫌だ。ま、そういう価値観がありまして、それで飼い主との中、あの、関係の中で、ま、前に撫でられた行動を覚えていて、同じような状況の中で、前に
um, who is a uh, computer-based uh, psychotherapist built mostly to work with PTSD, uh, soldiers returning from the battlefield, um, surrounded by multi-sense cameras that can pick up gradations in skin temperature, sweat, eye movement, uh, body movements. So as good as I am at picking up anxiety, she's going to pick up more than me. And I'm just going to show you a little bit of a session. Um, and you'll see the, the it's like, it's like uh, um, Arnold, Schwarzenegger, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, like the way she sees the, the patient. And it, that's scary enough, but it, it's kind of interesting. Oh, hopefully, hopefully we'll work here. Sorry, folks. We have we have had some technical difficulties with the videos here. Ah, Hi, I'm Ellie. Thanks for coming in today. I was created to talk to people in a safe and secure environment. I'm not a therapist, but I'm here to learn about people and would love to learn about you. I'll ask a few questions to get us started. And please feel free to tell me anything. Your answers are totally confidential. Are you okay with this? Yes. So, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. That's good. Where are you from originally? I'm from Los Angeles. Oh, I'm from LA myself. <laughs> She's when from was the last <laughs> time you felt really happy? Uh, when was the last time? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not someone who's really like. I don't have any real high highs. I feel like I'm a level person. It's just happy. I guess to answer your question, probably, probably a couple months ago. I noticed you were hesitant on that one. Would you say you are generally a happy person? I'm generally happy. It's just lately there are... There are things... Just keeping me down. Can you tell me more about that? When was the last time you felt really happy? Um, but I try to stay happy. Um, I, I'd rather be happy. Uh, my kids keep me going. What advice would you have given yourself 10 or 20 years ago? Um, Her interventions aren't particularly PhD to, level. Uh, to not believe. Uh, to, to to not be so gullible, to not be so gullible. Mm. Um, I, I've been told recently that I have a tendency to believe um, people too readily um, without them having to prove anything. And uh, so as, as a result, um, I, uh, recently I've really... I, I've gotten myself in a lot of trouble. Um, and so I think that looking back, if I could have, I would tell myself 
um, to to not believe, to not be so stupid, um, and to think, uh, and just just not, to not be so gullible. Uh, Is it uncomfortable for you to talk about this? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, I, I hadn't really thought about that. Okay, you, so you get a general, a general kind of sense. It's important kind of to share with you that th this, is not, this is not a psychoanalyst, right? And she's not doing psychoanalysis. This program was built, like I say, uh, for soldiers coming back from war. And when we think about this, well, it's been developed by the U.S. military, so let's like hold, hold a little bit of suspicion there, right? But you think about young men coming back uh, with PTSD, right? And what do we know about, well, young to middle-aged men in general, probably the least likely to seek help for their problems, particularly mental health issues, probably the least likely to seek uh, help from a mental health professional, and the most likely to commit suicide. So can you imagine a situation in which a young man might prefer to see a therapist like this than to see a real person? And if this therapist is trained in PTSD, which is a very programmatic way of dealing with trauma, might that be a beneficial thing? Yeah? Bigger questions, you know, deal with trauma to what? Send them back out to war or to fix, you know, the fact that we're sending young men off to kill other people. There's big social issues going on here. But I think... Uh, it might very well be that when you're dealing with particularly pro programmatic things like being able to uh, sense a heart rate increasing, sense skin galvanization moving before it's perceptible to the human eye, that you might be able to engage in something like trauma better than a psychotherapist, maybe. We know that some forms of AI are better at identifying cancer than real doctors are. Yeah. So um, uncanny, creepy, we'll open it up for questions, possibly interesting. Definitely interesting, but not sure if it's good or not, so we'll find out. So that's pretty much the end of my talk. Uh, we've got about a half an hour for questions, answers, and discussion. Before we open up Thank you. <laughs>We hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Freud in Focus, exploring technology and why it could be giving us the creeps. We'll return for our next series of the Freud in Focus podcast in 2022. But for now, a big thank you to Dr. Aaron Balick for this lecture, my co-host Tom DeRose, and our series producer, Carolina Heller. And thank you so much, wherever you are in the world, for listening. We'll see you again soon.